Today, we're going to be talking about the question, the most important question that you can possibly know the answer to. While I was on vacation, I broke a vow, a vow that I had made back in 1994. I went down, this is the breaking the vow part, it's nothing, nothing big, nothing heavy, <laughs> just so everybody could take a sigh of relief, right? In 1994, uh, when I graduated from college, I vowed never to return to that college. And while we were on vacation, we planned on going through Southern California, and we went and visited my college, so I broke that vow. You see, I was saved in 1993, my junior year in college, just in time to realize that the things that I was being taught in this Christian liberal arts college uh, were completely false. And honestly, that left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth when the pastor of the church where I was saved started teaching me truth, and I started comparing it to the things that I've been taught in the classroom and realizing, wow, I'm paying how much money a year to be taught a bunch of lies? And so honestly, yeah, I left with a really bitter taste in my mouth, but uh, again, like I said, we were in Southern California, and all my friends that I'm connected with uh, from college on Facebook were telling me, wow, you know, this place has changed, this place has grown, you got to check this place out, and so we went to the college, and, uh, and we were checking it out. I won't dwell on the negative aspects, there were some things there that really broke my heart. Uh, you can ask me about that uh, later if you're curious. Uh, I posted it all over Facebook, so you probably couldn't have missed it if you follow me on Facebook. Um, but I had some, some great memories as we, uh, as we walked around the campus. And one of the memories it brought back as we walked past my freshman year dorm, um, it, it was a discovery, I guess, or uh, uh, an epiphany uh, that, I, that I made in 1990. See, my roommate from my freshman year had a computer and they were really rare back then. Most people, most students in 1990 didn't have a computer. They were still using those things called typewriters, which kind of looks like a keyboard for those of you who are in the younger generation, except paper comes out the back. Um, so it, and it, we had a really happening room. Me and my freshman roommate, we had a really happening room, but it wasn't because of the things that you might be thinking. It was because he had this computer, and everybody wanted to use his computer to type out their papers. And the thing is, it's not that it was so neat to type out a paper on a computer. It was the fact that you can do things with a computer when you're typing a paper that you can't do with a typewriter, like turning a two-page paper into a three-page paper. <laughs> things like that. And how do you do that? Of course, you adjust font size, or you, can, or you can adjust the margins. You can do this thing called justifying the margins, which will make it just a little bit longer. And that was my discovery justified margins. I thought that was the coolest thing because apparently I grew up under a rock because I always thought, you know, you look at a newspaper and the right margin and the left margin are straight right up and down. And I thought, wow, that must be something they learned how to do in college or something, you know, use some creative wording or I didn't know how they lined up the right side because every time I tried to type something on my typewriter, it was crooked, right? It was unjustified, but I discovered the un. Uh, that, that there was a, a way to do it. There was a justified margin. And what seems so trivial and mundane and, and simple to, to all of us today uh, seemed like a really neat discovery back in the day. I remember thinking, oh, that's how journalists do it. Pfft. Who would have thought? Now, I'm going to ask you to hold on to that concept of a justified margin for just a moment, remembering 
that a justified margin, the implication there is that the margin is straight. If it remains crooked and uneven, it would be unjustified. If it's straight, it's justified. And the same concept carries over to the Bible. See, when the Bible speaks of being justified, it's talking about being made straight with God. So if you're justified, you're made straight with God. If you're not justified, you're made crooked. Make sense? Now, those of you who are, um, who are familiar with church history, and I know a lot of you are, uh, you're probably familiar with Martin Luther, and you know all about the impact that he had on the Reformation movement of the church. But what impacted him? I mean, what was it that caused him to make such a huge impact on church history? Well, Luther was, uh, he started out as a Catholic monk, a Roman Catholic monk, who came to recognize that the Roman Catholic Church at the time was, had become incredibly and increasingly crooked and offered no message of hope, no assurance of justification, being made straight with God. And he'd do things like praying constantly and doing all kinds of rites and rituals in an attempt to find this assurance, in an attempt to find this peace. And he couldn't find it until he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, the just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Those, how many words is that? Six words made such a huge impact on him. The just shall live by faith. And as he continued studying the Bible with this verse in mind and with this concept in mind, he became more and more aware of the fact that getting straight with God, justification, has nothing to do with rites or rituals or ceremonies or any of our works, but rather is based entirely on Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. And thus ensued the Reformation movement. That's where it all started. Now, the name of our current series is True North. And of course, we're talking about principles that will ensure our proper navigation through life. We're talking about the five solas of the Reformation. These are the principles that we're talking about. And these are things that will ensure our proper navigation through life, both as individual followers of Jesus and corporately as a church as well, a body of believers as well. And the first principle that we covered is sola deo gloria, if you remember. The principle that everything that we do should be for the glory of God alone. Because all of the glory is his. Remember, he's the king of glory. And all the glory belongs to him. None of it belongs to us. It's all his. That was the first principle we covered. The second principle that we covered is sola scriptura. The principle that the Bible is the supreme, the Bible or or the scriptures are the supreme authority in the life of the follower of Jesus. And the reason that the Bible has that kind of authority in the life of the Christian is because God has that type of authority, and the Bible is the Word of God. So therefore, the Bible has supreme authority. The third principle that we covered was sola gratia, the principle that we are saved by grace alone, not by works, not by merit, not because we deserve it, because salvation is a gift. And a gift is, by definition, something that has to be given freely something that isn't given because they deserve it. It's given regardless of whether a person has done anything to deserve or earn that gift. But in light of that truth, in light of the fact that we are saved by grace alone, the question that we must raise is, how do we get it? How do we tap into it? How do we receive it? How do we receive God's grace? That's the question that you need to know the answer to, that everybody needs to know 
the answer to. See, if it's a gift, and it is, it must be received. For example, let's say that out of the goodness of my heart, I give someone a $100 bill. Is it a gift? Well, it depends. Am I asking that person to pay me back? Because if I am, it's not a gift. But if it's just given out of the goodness of my heart and I don't want them to pay it back, yeah, it's a gift. And can you imagine how insulted you might feel if you gave, say you had a child who who needed some money and so you just gave them some money. Can you imagine how insulted they'd be, or you'd be, when they turned to you and said, well, let's figure out how I'm going to pay you back for this. And you insist, no, 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 this is just a gift. And they insist, no, I won't take it as a gift from you. I've got to pay you back. It's a little bit of an insult. That's how God's grace is. It's not a gift. It's not something that we're able to pay back, so to speak. That's how God's grace works. But there's a second requirement for it to be a gift, technically speaking. And that is that it has to be received. Now, receiving a $100 bill is really easy. If, if you don't believe me, try giving me a $100 bill. I'll show you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's easy because you can see it. You can, you can feel it. Maybe you can smell it. I wouldn't know. I don't have a sense of smell. But it's tangible. You can hold it in your hot little hand. You can spend it. You can do whatever you want with it. It's there. You can believe that it's there because you can empirically verify that it's there. But what if you couldn't see it? What if you couldn't see it? Let's say that I transferred uh, $10,000 into your bank account. Would you believe me? Well, you know, if you, if you were to go out and spend, uh, you know, $8,000, say, uh, and I didn't do it, you'd have some overdraft charges that would haunt you for years, right? So the, the real question is, are you willing to act on what I've told you? I've told you that I've transferred $10,000 to your account. And whether you believe me or not, whether you trust me, whether you have faith in what I have said will be reflected in your actions, So today, we're looking at the doctrine of sola fide, which means faith alone. We're saved by grace, but how do we receive it? Through faith alone. Now, before we we continue, we should realize um, that it does sound a little bit strange to say that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, because when you take two things that are alone and put them together, they're not alone. So it sounds kind of funny to say uh, grace alone through faith alone. So I want to explain how these two principles work together, and yet how they remain distinct from one another. Um, and I guess the best illustration I, I could come up with in, in, my, you know, in my mind was the way a car works. If you'll imagine salvation for just a moment working like a car, and I realize this isn't a perfect illustration, but hopefully you get the point. If I asked you, what is it that fuels your car? What is it that makes your car go? Uh, your answer would probably be gasoline. Uh, I mean, that's why we call it a gas tank, because we put gas in the tank, right? Uh, I mean, what would happen if you tried to put some other kind of liquid in there? If you put water in there, uh, and, and you don't have one of those new engines that can run on water, supposedly, you know, they're developing that technology. But if you put water in a tank made for gas, what's going to happen? If you put milk in a tank made for gas, if you put coffee in a tank made for gas, what's going to happen? Well, coffee helps me get going in the morning, but it's not going to help your car get going. In fact, you're going to have some really expensive bills if you try putting any liquid other than gas in there. Uh, And that's God's grace. That's the way God's grace works. But having a full tank of gas means absolutely nothing if you don't have something to tap into it. Let's just narrow it down to the simplest thing and say the ignition. 
If you don't turn the ignition, you can't use the gas to move the car. Does that make sense? That's what the ignition is there for, to, to access uh, the resources in the gas tank. So why do you turn the ignition? Well, you know, if you, if you believe that your gas tank is empty, you're not going to try to turn the ignition. But you turn the ignition because you believe that there is enough gas in the gas tank. Even though you can't see with your own eyes, unless you get some special equipment, exactly what's in the gas tank. And that's the faith aspect. Similarly, God's grace can only be received by trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. Since humanity's departure from the Garden of Eden, since we got booted out for sin in the Garden of Eden, humanity has tried to work and work and work and find some other way to be justified, set straight with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that this struggle to find a way to be justified, this way to, uh, to be restored to our previous condition, this question has existed since the creation of the world and that humanity's solution has always been, has always been to turn away from the creator and to worship the creation instead. And what's amazing is that this tendency that humanity has had since the dawn of creation is the same tendency that people have today around the world. Universally, that's our tendency. That's our instinct. People want to feel like they deserve salvation. We like to get the things that we deserve, right? Until we realize what we deserve. We like to get what we feel like we deserve. And so people ascribe to some other system in which it can be earned or where they feel like they deserve it. That's what every world religion other than Christianity is based on. Religion says, I'm saved because I obey, but the gospel says, I'm saved. Therefore, I obey. Religion says, I obey God so that I can be blessed by God. The gospel is that you can be blessed by God, and therefore, you obey. Religion says, I'm motivated by things like fear and guilt, but the gospel says, I'm motivated by grace and the joy of assurance. And the difference between the gospel and every other world religion, the difference between Christianity and every other world religion, which is why some people don't refer to Christianity as a religion, because there is one huge difference, one almost defining difference that puts Christianity in almost a completely different category, at least in the eyes of a lot of people. And that is simply this. The gospel is the only system which affirms that works won't save us, that there is nothing that we can do to be made straight with God, but that faith and faith alone is the means by which we can receive God's grace. Now, this is not a new issue. This is not a new issue. This is found throughout the pages of Scripture. It's found from Genesis to Revelation, and it really all came to a head at one point in the early church, and that's where we start today in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We see this issue really rise and become a serious, serious problem that leads to the first church council, by the way, being called. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them 
should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Let's go ahead and stop there for a moment. We should note in passing that the location here is the church of Antioch. It starts in the city of Antioch. Now, if you don't know anything about Antioch, there's one thing that you should remember uh, because this was a, uh, a very significant church. This was the first place where followers of Jesus were called little Christs or Christians. That's, that's where it all began. So these Judaizers have come to the place where, as far as they're concerned, this is where the movement began. This is where all these Gentiles started coming in. They, they were a multi-ethnic church, right? They were, they were a place where scores of Gentiles from different cultures and different ethnicities were drawn in. And these were people who hadn't been raised in accordance with the customs of the people of the land. The people who were natives of Antioch would have been familiar with Jewish customs, but that's not what this church was comprised of. It was comprised of people from all over the place. And so these people weren't familiar with Jewish customs. If anything, these people, these Gentiles, came from situations that were perhaps similar to that of Abraham. Pagan cultures. Abraham started out as a pagan. He came from a pagan culture where multiple gods were being worshipped. How ironic, then, in light of this fact, that the Judaizers would say that these converts had to be circumcised in accordance with the custom of Moses. Well, okay, let's look at that for a second, because Moses didn't start the custom. In fact, if you look through the Bible, if you look through Genesis chapter 17, you'll find that it was given first to Abraham. That is where the, the whole circumcision thing began. So maybe these, these Judaizers were referring to the fact that Moses included circumcision in the Mosaic law, or maybe, and I think this is probably less likely, but maybe uh, these guys just didn't know their Bibles as well as they thought they did. Because really, it started with Abraham, but it was enforced by Moses. Now, we should note that the Judaizers here are not saying that Gentiles can't be saved. They're not saying that these guys are ineligible for salvation. They're saying that if they want to be saved, they have to get ready to jump through the same hoops as all the Jews had been taught to jump through. So the heart of their argument was really the same as the heart of of every other world religion. And that is, you have to be saved by merit. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. You better deserve it, or you're not going to get it. So Luke tells us, Luke's, of course, the author of Acts, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas took this really lightly. They got together and they said, you know what, let's just love these guys. And, you know, this isn't something that's worth arguing about. And, you know, we we need unity. We need peace and love. Of course, I'm pulling your leg. That is not what Paul and Barnabas did. Uh, No, uh, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas not only had an argument with them, not only had dissension with them, but that they had great dissension with them. And if you were to translate these, uh, these words literally from the Greek, Luke says that they didn't have slight strife with the Judaizers. And that's kind of a sarcastic way of saying it was a huge falling out. It was a huge argument. And in fact, if you take this word, this word strife or uh, dissent in other parts of the New Testament, it's translated as riot. That word is translated as riot. In other words, it was a huge deal to Paul and Barnabas. They were ready to riot over it. There was an enormous amount of strife 
on Paul and Barnabas' behalf against these Judaizers. Why? Why are they so worked up? Because the salvation of every follower of Jesus is at stake on this one issue. The question, what must one do to be saved? The same question that the jailer in chapter 16, which we're not going to cover today, asks Paul and Barnabas. What do I have to do to be saved? That really is the most important question anyone can possibly know the answer to. So the church in Antioch, they they stood behind Paul and Barnabas for the time being, but they needed confirmation. They needed more people to voice their insight, their opinion, their expertise on this issue. And so these guys, you know, they're thinking, you know, are these guys rogue apostles? Are, Are Paul and Barnabas teaching something that the guys in Jerusalem would never teach? Is this something new? Is this something uh, that has nothing to do with the gospel at all? They needed to know. They needed to know. So the church in Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with some other brethren from the church. doesn't say why they sent some other brethren. Maybe it was for protection. Maybe, maybe it was just for validation to make sure that that really is what everybody else said. What, what all the other uh, disciples and apostles said. And so thus the first, cha- uh, first church council was called on really the, the mother of all issues. Must we obey the law of Moses in order to be saved? Or for that matter, must we do any ceremonial rite or ritual in order to be saved? Of course, the Judaizers were saying, yes, you must do these things. You must jump through these hoops. And Paul and Barnabas are saying no. Now, before we criticize the Judaizers uh, too harshly, I think we do need to realize that it's really easy for us to slip right into their shoes. And it happens. It happens. Good, well-meaning people who are just trying to protect the gospel sometimes slip right into these guys' shoes. It's really easy for us to accidentally or unwittingly confuse upholding tradition with obedience to God. Does that make sense? If you're familiar with the KJV only debate, for example, the KJV only debate, there there are a, a group of Christians who love the Lord, who can be saved just like you and I are saved, who say that if you read any translation other than the King James Version, it doesn't have any authority. Now, these people mean well, and, and you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to, trying to insult them. You guys hear me call it the King Jimmy version all the time, and I say that kind of jokingly, but I'm, I'm not trying to be irreverent to the people. Just the concept to me is a little bit on the ridiculous side, but that's exactly the type of thing that I'm referring to. The people mean well, but their argument that the KJV, the King Jimmy version, had to say it, is the only authoritative translation is based on not only faulty logic, but a strong sense of tradition. They're trying to do the right thing, right? But it just doesn't work. They're, get, they're confused between strong tradition and obedience to God. Uh, there was a church a couple years ago here in the Pacific Northwest that took a lot of heat because they were meeting in a bar rather than in a church building. And those who criticized them, again, they they meant well. They wanted what's best for the kingdom. They wanted what was best for the people who were meeting in this bar. But where a church meets is, trust me, it's far from being a black and white issue. 
It's far from being a black and white issue. There is nothing in Scripture that says you have to meet in a building that's 15 by 25. There's nothing like that. There's no prescription for where you have to meet. So there's grace on the issue. Now, the church, meters, the, the church attenders who were meeting in the bar, you know, they, they felt the same sense of obedience to the gospel and to Jesus that those who opposed them felt. Again, the arguments that were used to criticize this church were based on faulty logic and a strong sense of tradition. And I say this just to remind us that the gospel is about experiencing the life that God created each and every one of us to experience, which is only found by faith in Jesus. That's what entices people. It's not about meeting the criteria of a checklist. It's about having a relationship with God through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. Having a, a checklist faith, a, a, a religion that's based on, did you do this check? Did you do this check? You know, that might entice a certain type of people, but it won't save them. So let's see where this goes once Paul and Barnabas hit the road. Verses 3 and 5. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But... Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, I I hope, I, I honestly hope you see what's going on here in the church in Jerusalem. A lot of young, immature, spiritually immature people, a lot of division. There are the apostles on one hand who are teaching the things that Jesus taught them and teaching the Old, Testaments, uh, the Old Testament, I'm sure, in light of the truths that Jesus taught them. And on the other hand, you have a handful of Pharisees who had apparently converted to Christianity. Paul wasn't the only one. And these are guys who were as, of course, f- as familiar with the Old Testament as anybody you will ever meet. And it's, you know, the thing is, it's difficult to read books like the book of Hebrews and walk away, you know, not understanding that the message of the Old Testament was salvation by faith alone. But these guys had missed it. Isn't that funny? The Old Testament message is the same as the New Testament message. Faith. The book of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. Of course, they didn't have the book of Hebrews to, to look at. Nevertheless, they knew the Old Testament, and they had completely overlooked the fact that it's all about faith because they'd focused on the rules and the regulations, the laws that Moses had laid out before them. Wow. See, the law of Moses was never about cleaning a person. It was never about cleansing. If you go through the 600 plus instructions given in the law of Moses, you can't miss the fact that everybody, everybody from God's perspective is unclean. Everybody. So the purpose of the law of Moses was the same as a mirror. It was designed to show a person how filthy, how unclean their sin renders them. Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified 
by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified. Great. So again, if, if nobody can be made straight by, uh, by observing the law, uh, you know, then what's the purpose of the law? Paul goes on to tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says, The law has become our tutor, our guide, our teacher to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. See, you, you, you look in the mirror, and you, like me, you, you know, I say, oh, well, I need to shave. Uh, you guys can't see it, though, because all my facial hair is blonde. Uh, you see that you're unclean. You're dirty. What do you do? You don't rub your face all over the mirror and hope that the mirror cleans your face off. The mirror won't clean your face off. The mirror won't shave you. The mirror reveals the fact that you need to shave or that you're unclean, but that's all that the mirror does. That's all that it does, and it's the same as the law of Moses. Once a person realizes that they are filthy in God's eyes, they realize they need to be made clean, and they realize that these 600-plus rules, they just can't keep them because once they take one smudge off, man, another five have shown up. When they realize that they can't keep themselves clean, There's only one other option, and that is trusting that God's grace is sufficient for their shortcomings. Some of the first Christians in the church here had such a hard time grasping the concept of faith rather than works, and so they stood up. These these Pharisees who had been converted to Christianity stood up and insisted that in observing the law of Moses, including circumcision, was necessary for salvation. So let's see how this plays out. Verses 6 to 11. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Before any circumcision, these Gentiles had already received the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, between the Jews and the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, maybe we should define faith and understand exactly what faith is. Some people will say it means trusting in something that you have no evidence for. That's not what faith is. The Greek word for faith is, is simply the noun form of the word to believe or to trust. For example, if you look at John chapter 3, verse 16, where Jesus really spells out the gospel, he says, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes. Okay, that's that's the same root word as faith. So if you were to make faith a verb, you could say whoever or whosoever faiths in Jesus shall not perish but will have eternal life. And so when Peter says we believe, he's saying we faith. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And this is a declaration of salvation by faith alone. By grace, through faith alone. 
And this is the conclusion of the early church. We trust, we have faith, we believe that God's grace and only God's grace can get us straightened out with God. And we receive it by just trusting. Now, all of this would be really worthless information. It would just be a bunch of information that you leave with, and you know, maybe when you're playing Bible trivia someday, you can talk about this or something. But it, so this would all be a waste of time if you didn't leave here today with a, a better understanding of what this means, how it relates to your life, where you are today. While it's unquestionably true that we're saved by faith alone, we should probably re- remember that we're not just talking about intellectual assent here. We're not just talking about knowing something. Martin Luther proclaimed that true faith, the faith that gets us straight with God by receiving God's grace, he gave it the term fides viva. Fides viva. It's a living, active, vibrant faith. It's, an act, it's a faith of action which yields a harvest of good works. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, quote, Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Saving faith is not a lonely faith, having no works following as a companion, end quote. See, saving faith is more than intellectual assent. It is intellectual assent. You, you know it. You believe it. It's in your mind. But it doesn't just stop there. It's trusting in something enough to act on that trust. It's drawing on that $10,000 that someone transferred to your bank account, even though you might not see that it was deposited. True faith provokes us to act in accordance with what we believe, with what we trust. So the question is, how much do we trust in what God has promised? That's really what it all boils down to. And you see, in the, in the faith and works debate, a lot of people will say these two things are incompatible. You're, you either are pro-faith or you're pro-works. You can't be both. And it's really easy to say that the faith camp doesn't see the need for works and the works camp doesn't see the need for faith. But I think it's important that we don't land uh, exclusively in either camp because I'd say that alone they're each wrong. Faith and works are not mutually exclusive. They don't contradict each other. Rather, they work together. They work together. Faith drives our works, and works help to strengthen, increase, and perfect our faith. And Jesus told us what happens when you work, when you do works. Here's the purpose of works. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And do what? And glorify, right, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So maybe the question is, what constitutes a good work? What exactly is a good work? Well, for some people, uh, if I'm being honest, including myself, maybe it means getting out of bed on Sunday morning instead of sleeping in. I, you know, people go toward the, te- the, the path of least resistance. That's our tendency, and I'm no different. I would, I would love to sleep in on Sundays, but I can't because I'm anxious to worship. I'm anxious to come in and worship and see you guys. We get up and we get out of bed anyway. And that won't get us saved. Go- getting up and going to church won't get us saved. Why do we do it, though? We do it because we're saved right? 
Now, we all know what James had to say about faith and works, and this confuses a lot of people. But look at what he says in James chapter 2, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And when I read this, I'm reminded of the fact that sometimes, not all the time, maybe not even half the time, but sometimes, when you've got a married couple who live their whole lives together, one of them dies, you know, for whatever reason, and it's not long, maybe a year, maybe two years, before the other one dies as well. Some people would say it's of a lack of companionship. And James is saying that if faith has no works, it dies of a lack of companionship. You see, a faith that refuses to be obedient to Jesus, a faith that refuses to act is dead. In fact, you might even call it a stillborn faith, as if it never really lived at all. It was maybe never legitimate to begin with. And here's the important thing that we need to understand. It's not that faith plus works leads to justification. See, that that was the, the view of these Judaizers, right? Faith plus works equals justification. That's the view of every world religion, and it's contrary to the gospel. Rather, it's that faith alone leads to justification plus works. Let me say that again. It's not that faith plus works leads to justification, right? It's that faith alone leads to justification plus works. And James goes on to say in verses 21 and 22, chapter 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as the result of the works, faith was perfected, strengthened, increased. See, faith drives our works, right? And works increase. They perfect our faith. So the answer isn't found in either faith or works, but in faith and works, and the way that these two things work together. Nevertheless, we should make note of the fact that this cycle begins with faith. The works have to be driven by faith. Faith will not be driven by works. That's putting the cart before the horse. Now, we need to understand that we are, we are all, every single one of us in here, we are all on this journey toward this perfect faith that James is talking about, and not a single one of us in here is there yet. Definitely not me. Nobody's there yet. And so I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to, to avoid the tendency of looking at it as a black and white issue. Like either you have faith and it's complete or you have no faith because that's not the way it works. It's something that we have to learn to grow in. It's something that must increase. It's something that must be perfected. So I'd say it's more of a, of a range. It's more like a spectrum. If you were to look at it as a scale you know, from 1 to 10, where maybe 10 is no faith, and 2 is baby, baby, baby faith. Sounds like a Justin Bieber song. Um, <laughs> 2 is baby, baby, baby faith, and 10 is that perfect faith that James is talking about. So let me ask you this. Where are you between 2 and 10? Or between 1 and 10? Where are you? And don't answer me. You know, I'm not expecting you to answer me. When I, when I look at myself and I'm being honest, and I see how, you know, there was a time when I would have said, man, I'm around an 8. I'm around a 9. But I've grown so much since then. I'm wise enough now to say, okay, I'm, I'm probably around a 4 or 5. I've got a long way to go. Maybe, maybe I'm halfway there. 
So where are you on that spectrum? This is just between you and the Lord. But what would it take to get you to move just one notch closer to that 10? What would it take? What good work could strengthen and perfect your faith? Maybe for some of you it would be praying more often. That's something, you know, Rick Warren once said, the thing that's going to amaze me most when I get to heaven is that I didn't pray more. I'd say the same for myself. You know, when I catch myself getting frustrated and it's like, man, why why didn't I just go pray about it? Maybe it means praying. Maybe it means making it a priority to come to church more often. Maybe it would mean spending more time studying Scripture. For others, maybe it would mean being a better steward with your time and your resources and the things that God has blessed you with. Maybe for you, it would mean letting go of a sin that you have stubbornly refused to let go of for a long, long time. And finally, just coming and laying it at the foot of the cross and giving it over to Jesus. What would it take to get you to move up just one notch? You know, we all struggle. We all struggle. Every single one of us, even the pastor, every pastor out there. We all struggle in striving toward perfect faith. And thankfully, we are all a work in progress. And listen, that is good news to somebody like me, but it's probably better news to somebody like my wife. (laughs) Knowing that I am a work in progress. Not that she's a work in progress, although she is. But she can say, okay, I I can bear with him for a couple years because he is a work in progress. But in all seriousness, know this. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the author and perfecter of our faith. And the day will come when we receive our glorified bodies. There's justification. That's when we are made right with God, made straight with God. There's sanctification. That's where God is continuing to straighten us out. And then there's glorification, where we're made perfect, where we're removed from the power of sin completely. And that day will come when each one of us who trusts in the sufficiency of God's grace will reach that 10 on the spectrum. And it's not something that we're going to do ourselves. It's a work that Jesus and only Jesus can do in us. And that's a promise that we can believe. That's a promise that we can trust. A promise that we can faith, so to speak. And get this, the more fully we believe, that is, the more our faith increases, the more fully we will experience God's transforming grace. It's His grace alone that we're saved by, and we can only receive it by faith in Christ alone. That's the doctrine. Sola Christus, Christ alone. That's the doctrine that we'll be talking about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray today that you would increase our faith, Lord, that we would be like the disciples when Jesus was telling them about the faith of a mustard seed, and they said, increase our faith. God, will you increase our faith today? I pray that you'd lay convictions on our hearts to do good works, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours, works that would strengthen our faith, draw us closer to you, and would testify to your amazing grace. God, we love you. We belong to you. Teach us to be more like you. Teach us to be more like your son. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.